Chapter 3, Part 1 of Haunted London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Drew Conway, Kent. Haunted London by Walter Thornbury. Chapter 3, Part 1. The Strand. Southside, Part 1. Essex Street was formerly part of the Outer Temple the western wing of the Knights Templars' quarter. The outer district of these proud and wealthy crusaders stretched as far as the present Devereux Court, those gentler spoilers and medieval lawyers having extended their frontiers quite as far as their rooted-out predecessors. From the prior and canons of the Holy Sepulchre, it was transferred, in the reign of Edward II, to the bishops of Exeter, who built a palace here, and occupied it till the reign of Henry the Seventh or Henry the Eighth. The first tenant of Exeter House was the ill-fated Walter Stapleton, Lord Treasurer of England, a firm adherent to the luckless Edward the Second against his queen and the turbulent barons. In thirteen twenty-six, when Isabella landed from France to chase the Spencers from her husband's side and advanced on London, the weak king and his evil counsellors fled to the Welsh frontier, but the bishop held out stoutly for his king, and, as custos of the city of London, demanded the keys from the Lord Mayor, Hammond Chickwell, to prevent the treachery of the disaffected city. The watchful populace, roused by Isabella's proclamation that had been hung on the new cross in Cheapside, rose in arms, seized the vacillating mayor, and took the keys. They next ran to Exeter House, then newly erected, fired the gates and burnt all the plate, jewels, money and goods. The bishop, at the time in the fields, being almost too proud to show fear, rode straight to the northern door of St. Paul's to take sanctuary. There the mob tore him from his horse, stripped him of his armour, and dragging him to Cheapside, proclaimed him a traitor, a seducer of the king, and an enemy of their liberties, and lopping off his head, set it on a pole. The corpse was buried without funeral service in an old churchyard of the Pied Friars. His brother and some servants were also beheaded, and their bleeding and naked bodies thrown on a heap of rubbish by the riverside. Exeter Place was shortly afterwards rebuilt, but the new house seemed a doomed place, and brought no better fortune to its new owners. Lord Paget, who changed its name to Paget House, fought at Boulogne under the poet Earl of Surrey, was ambassador at the court of Charles V, and on his return obtained a peerage and the garter. He fell with the protector Somerset, being accused of having planned the assassination of the Duke of Northumberland at Paget House. Released from the tower, he was deprived of the garter upon the malicious pretense that he was not a gentleman by blood. Queen Mary, however, restored the fallen man to honour, made him Lord Privy Seal, and sent him on an embassy. The next occupier of the unlucky house, Thomas Howard, fourth Duke of Norfolk and son of the poet Earl of Surrey, maintained in its chambers an almost royal magnificence. It was here he was arrested for conspiring with the aid of Mary Queen of Scots, the Pope and the King of Spain, to marry Mary and restore the Popish religion. 
The Duke's ambition and treason were fully proved by his own intercepted letters. Indeed, he himself confessed his guilt, though he had denounced Mary to Elizabeth as a notorious adulteress and murderer. To crown his rashness, meanness, and treason, he wrote from the Tower the most abject letters to Elizabeth, imploring her clemency. He was privately beheaded in 1572, but his estates were restored to his children. It was under the mat, hard by the window, in the entry towards the Duke's bedchamber, that the celebrated alphabet in cipher was hidden, which the Duke afterwards concealed under a roof tile, where it was found unmasking all his plans. In the tower, the unhappy plotter had written affecting letters to his son Philip, bidding him worship God, avoid courts, and beware of ambition. The warning of the man whose eyes had been opened too late in touching. The writer, speaking of court life, remarks, It hath no certainty. Either a man, by following thereof, hath too much worldly pomp, which in the end throws him down headlong, or else he liveth there, unsatisfied, either that he cannot obtain to himself that he would, or else that he cannot do for his friends as his heart desireth. Poor Philip did not benefit much by these lessons, but remained simple Earl of Arundel, was repeatedly committed to the Tower as by necessity an ill-wisher to Elizabeth, and eventually died there after ten weary years of imprisonment. His initials are still to be found on the walls of one of the chambers in the Beauchamp Tower. Fools never learn the lessons which time tries so hard to beat into them. Plotter succeeds plotter, and the rough lesson of the headsman seldom teaches the conspirator's successor to cease from conspiring. To the Norfolks succeeded Dudley, the false Earl of Leicester, the black or gypsy earl, as he was called from his swarthy Italian complexion. Leicester, like the duke before him, plotted with Mary's Jesuits and assassins, and at the same time contrived to keep in favour with his own jealous queen, in spite of all his failures and schemings in Holland, and his suspected assassination of his enemies in England. Leicester died of fever the year of the Armada, 1588, on his return from the camp at Tilbury, leaving Leicester place to Robert de Vereux, his stepson, the Earl of Essex, who succeeded to his favour at court, but was doomed to an untimely death. It was to the great lord of Kenilworth, that dark, mysterious man, who perhaps deserved more praise than historians usually give him, that Spencer dedicated his poem of Virgil's Gnat, in his beautiful prolathamion on the marriage of Lady Elizabeth and Lady Catherine Somerset, he speaks somewhat abjectly of Leicester, ingeniously contriving to remind Essex of his father-in-law's bounty. Near to the temple, the needy poet says, stands a stately place where I gained gifts and the godly grace, and of that great lord who there was not wont to dwell, whose want too well now feels my friendless case. But ah, here fits not well, old woes. Then the poet goes on to eulogise Essex, who, however it is supposed, after all, allowed him to die in want. But there is a mystery about Spencer's death. He returned from Ireland, beggared and almost broken-hearted, in October or November 1599, 
and died in the January following, just as Essex was preparing to start to Ireland. In that whirl of ambition, the poor poet may perhaps have been rather overlooked than willfully slighted. This at least is certain, that he was buried in Westminster Abbey near Chaucer's tomb, the Earl of Essex defraying the expenses of his public funeral. It was in his prison house near the temple that the harebrained Earl of Essex shut himself sulkily up when Queen Elizabeth had given him a box on the ears after a dispute about the new deputy for Ireland in which the Earl had shown a petulant violence unworthy of the pupil of Burley. Far too much sympathy has been shown with this rash, imperious and unbearable young noble. He was sent to Ireland and there concluded a disgraceful, willful and traitorous treaty with one of England's most inveterate and dangerous enemies. He returned from that cursedest of all Ireland's, as he called it, against express command and was with difficulty dissuaded from landing in open rebellion. Generous and frank he may have been, but his submission to the mild and well-deserved punishment of confinement to his own house was as base and abject as it was false and hypocritical. Alarmed, mortified and enraged at the duration of his banishment from the court and at the refusal of a renewed grant from the monopoly of sweet wines, Essex betook himself to open rebellion urged on by ill advisers and his own reckless impatient spirit he invited the puritan preachers to prayers and sermons he plotted with the king of scotland it was arranged at secret meetings at drury house then sir charles davers to seize whitehall and compel the queen to dismiss cecil and other ministers hostile to essex sir christopher blount was to seize the palace gates Davies the halls, Davies the guardroom, and presence chamber, while Essex, rushing in from the mews with some hundred and twenty adherents, was to compel the Queen to assemble a Parliament to dismiss his enemies and to fix the succession. All these plans were proposed to Essex in writing. The arch-conspirator was never himself present. The delay of letters from Scotland led to the premature outbreak of the plot. An order was at once sent summoning Essex to the council, and the palace guards were doubled. On Sunday, February the 7th, 1601, Essex, fearing instant arrest, assembled his friends and determined to arm and sally forth to St Paul's Cross, where the Lord Mayor and Aldermen were hearing the sermon, and urged them to follow him to the palace. On the Lord Keeper and other noblemen coming to the house to know the cause of the assembly, Essex locked them into a back parlour, guarded by musketeers, and followed by two hundred gentlemen, drew his sword and rushed into the street like a madman running amuck. Temple Bar was opened for him but at St Paul's Cross he found no meeting. The citizens crowded round him, but did not join his band. When he reached the house of Sheriff Smith, the crafty sheriff had stolen away. In the meantime, Lord Burley and the Earl of Cumberland, with a herald, had entered the city and proclaimed Essex a traitor, a thousand pounds being offered for his apprehension. 
Despairing of success, the mad earl then turned towards his own house, and finding Ludgate barricaded by a strong party of citizens under Sir John Levison, attempted to force his way, killing two or three citizens and losing Tracy, a young friend of his own. Then striking down to Queen's Hythe, the earl and some fifty followers who were left took boat for Essex Gardens. On entering his house, he found that his treacherous confidant, Sir Ferdinand Gorges, had made terms with the court and released the hostages. Essex then, by the advice of Lord Sandys, resolved to fortify the place, hold out to the last extremity and die sword in hand. In a few minutes, however, the Lord Admiral's troops surrounded the building. A parley ensued between Sir Robert Sidney in the garden and Essex and his rash ally, Shakespeare's patron, the Earl of Southampton, who were on the roof. The Earl's demands were proudly refused, but a respite of two hours was given him, that the ladies and female servants might retire. About six, the battering train arrived from the tower, and Essex then wisely surrendered at discretion. The night being very dark and the tide not serving too past the dangers of London Bridge, Essex and Southampton were taken by boat to Lambeth Palace, and the next morning to the tower. Essex had fully deserved death. He was executed privately by his own request at the tower, February the 25th, 1601. Merrick, his steward, and Cuff, his secretary, were hanged and quartered at Tyburn. Sir Charles Davers and Sir Christopher Blount perished on Tower Hill. Other prisoners were fined and imprisoned, and the Earl of Southampton pined endurance till the accession of James I, 1603. Among the even older tenants of Essex House, we must not forget that unhappy woman, the Earl's mother, who first as Lettice Nollies, then as Countess of Essex, afterwards as Lady Leicester, and next as wife of Sir Christopher Blount, was a barb in Elizabeth's side for thirty years. Married as a girl to a noble husband, she gave up her honour to a seducer, and there is reason to think that she consented to the taking of his life. While Devereux lived, she deceived the Queen by scandalous amour, and after his death, by clandestine marriage with the Earl of Leicester. While Dudley lived, she wallowed in licentious love with Christopher Blount, his groom of the horse. When her second husband expired in agony at Cornbury, not an hour's gallop from the place in which Amy Robsart died, she again mortified the Queen by a secret union with her last seducer, Blount. Her children rioted in the same vices. Essex himself, with his ring of favourites, was more profligate than his sister Penelope, Lady Rich. This sister was the platonic mistress of Sydney, whose stolen love for her is pictured in his most voluptuous verse. On his death at Zudfen, she lived with Lord Mountjoy, though her husband, Lord Rich, was still alive. Nor was her sister Dorothy one whit better. After marrying one husband secretly and against the canon, she wedded Percy, 
the wizard Earl of Northumberland, whom she'd led the life of a dog until he indignantly turned her out of doors. It is not easy, observes Mr. Dixon, except in Italian story, to find a group of women so depraved and so detestable as the mother and sister of the Earl of Essex. Essex, the rash noble, who died at an untimely age of thirty-three, had a dangerous, ill-tempered face, if we may judge by Moore's portrait of him. He stooped in walking, danced badly, and was slovenly in his dress. Yet being a generous, frank friend, an impetuous and chivalrous, if not wise soldier, and an enemy of Spain and the Cecils, he became a favourite of the people. The legend of the ring, sent by Essex to the Queen, and maliciously detained by the Countess of Nottingham, we shall presently discuss. No applications for mercy by Essex, and he made many during his trial, affect the question of his deserving death. That the Queen consented with regret to the death of Essex, on the other hand, needs no doubtful legend to serve as proof. Elizabeth had forgiven the Earl's joining the Cadiz flea against her wish. She forgave his secret marriage, she forgave his shameful abandonment of his Irish command and even his dishonourable treaty with Tyrone, but she could not forgive an open and flagrant rebellion at a time when she was so surrounded by enemies. An historical writer gifted with an eminently analytical mind, Mr. Hepworth Dixon, has lately with great ingenuity endeavoured to refute the charges of ingratitude brought against Bacon for his time serving, and to say the least undue eagerness in aggravating the crimes of his old and generous friend. There can be, however, no doubt that Bacon too soon abandoned the unfortunate Essex, and moreover threw the weight of much misapplied learning into the scale against the prisoner. No minimising of the favours received by him from Essex can in my mind remove this stain from Bacon's reputation. In Essex's house was born a less brilliant but a happier and a more prudent man, Robert, Earl of Essex, afterwards the well-known parliamentary general. A child when his father died on the scaffold, he was placed under the care of his grandmother, Lady Walsingham and was afterwards at Eton under the severe Savile. A good, worthy, heavy lad brought up a Presbyterian. He was betrothed when only fourteen to Lady Frances Howard, daughter of the Earl of Suffolk, who was herself only thirteen. The Earl travelled on the continent for four years, and on his return was married at Essex House, it was for this inauspicious marriage that Ben Jonson wrote one of his most beautiful and gorgeous masks, Inigo Jones contributing the machinery, and Ferrabrosco the music. The rough-grained poet seems to have been delighted with the success of the entertainment, for he says, Nor was there wanting whatsoever might give to the furniture a compliment, either in riches or strangeness of the habits, delicacy of dances, magnificence of the scene, or divine rapture of music. The Countess was already, even at this time, the mistress of Robert Carr, the handsome minion of James I. She obtained a divorce from her husband in 1613 and espoused her infamous lover. The cruel poisoning of Sir Thomas Overbury for opposing the new marriage followed, and the Earl and Countess found guilty, 
but spared by the weak king, lingered out their lives in mutual reproaches and contempt, loathed and neglected by all. Fate often runs in sequences. The earl was unhappy with his second wife, from whom he was also divorced. Essex emerged from a country retirement to turn general for the Parliament. Just, affable, and prudent, he was a popular man till he became marked as a moderatist desirous for peace, and was ousted by the artful self-denying ordinance. If he had lived, it is probable he would either have lost his head or have fled to France and turned cavalier. His death during the time that Charles I remained a prisoner with the Scotch army at Newcastle saved him from either fate. With him, the Presbyterian moderatists and the House of Peers finally lost even their little remaining power. When the Earl resigned his commission, the House of Commons went to Essex House to return their ex-general's thanks for his great services. A year later, they followed him to the grave, 1646, little perhaps thinking how bitterly the Earl had reproached them for ingratitude and what plans he had devised to reform the army and to check Cromwell and Fairfax. On the Earl's death, his royalist brother-in-law, the Marquess of Hertford, attempted to seize his ready money and papers, but was frustrated by the Parliament. Whether the next Earl, who on being arrested for sharing the Rye House plot, destroyed himself at the Tower, lived in his father's house, I do not know, but the mansion so unlucky to its owners was occupied by families of rank for some time after the restoration, and then falling into neglect and ruin, as fashion began to flow westward, was subdivided, and a street called Essex Street was built on part of its site. Samuel Patterson, the bookseller and auctioneer, lived in Essex Street in 1775, in rooms formerly the resident of Sir Orlando Bridgman. He was originally a bag-maker. Afterwards, Charles Dibden commenced his entertainments in these rooms, and here his fine song of Poor Jack became famous. Patterson's youngest child was Dr. Johnson's godson, and became a pupil of Ozias Humphrey. Patterson wrote a book of travels in Stern's manner, but claimed a priority to that strange writer. George Fordyce, a celebrated Epicurean doctor of the 18th century, lived in the same street. For twenty years he dined daily at Dooley's Chop House, and at his solitary meal he always took a tankard of strong ale, a quarter of a pint of brandy, and a bottle of port. After these portations, he walked to his house and gave a lecture to his pupils. Dr. Johnson, the year before he died, formed a club in Essex Street at the Essex Head, a tavern kept by an old servant of his friend, Frail, the brewer. It was less select than the literary club, but cheaper. Johnson, writing to Joshua Reynolds to join it, says, The terms are lax, and the expenses light. We meet thrice a week, and he who misses forfeits twopence. Sir John Hawkins spitefully calls it a low alehouse association, but Wyndham, Danes Barrington, Horsley, Boswell and Brocklesby were members of it, for rich men were less luxurious than they are now and enjoyed the sociable freedom of a tavern. Sir Joshua refused to join, probably because Barry, who had insulted him and was very pugnacious, had become a member. It went on happily for many years, says Boswell, whom Johnson when he proposed him for election, called a clubable man. 
Towards the end of his life, the great lexicographer grew more and more afraid of solitude, and a club so near his home was probably a great convenience to him. Near Devereux Court are the premises of the well-known tea-dealers, Messrs. Twining. The graceful recumbent stone figures of Chinamen over the strand front have much elegance and must have come from some good hand. One of this family was a culture's director and a translator of Aristotle's poetics. He was an excellent man, a good linguist and musician, and a witty companion. He was contemporary with Gray and Mason, the poets at Cambridge. In the back parlour is a portrait of the founder of the house. A century and a half ago, ladies used to drive to the door of Twining's and drink tiny cups of the new and fashionable beverage as they sat in their coaches. There is an epigram extant, written either by Theodore Hook or one of the Smiths. The point of it is that if you took away his tea, Twining would be whining. In 1652, Constantine, the Greek servant of a Levant merchant, opened in Devereux Court a coffee-house, which became known as the Grecian. In 1664-65, to 65, advertised his Turkish coffee-berry, chocolate sherbet and tea, as good and cheap, and announced his readiness to give gratuitous instructions in the art of preparing the said liquors. In the same year, a Greek named Pascal Rosy had also established a house in St. Michael's Alley, Cornhill, for the sale of the coffee drink. John Evelyn describes a Greek fellow student, afterwards Bishop of Smyrna, drinking coffee when he was at college in about 1637. In April 1709, still in number one of the Tatler, announces that he shall date all learned articles from the Grecian, all gallantry from White's, all poetry from Wills's, all foreign and domestic news from St. James's. In 1710-11, Addison started the Spectator along with Steele, tells us his own grave face was well known at the Grecian, and in number 49, April 1711, the spectator describes the spleen and inward laughter with which he views at the Grecian the young Templars come in, about 8am, either dressed for Westminster, and with a preoccupied air of assumed business, or in a gay cap, slippers, party-coloured dressing gowns, rising early to publish their laziness and being displaced by busier men towards noon. Dr. King relates a story of two hot-blooded young gentlemen quarrelling one evening at this coffee-house about the accent of a Greek word. Stepping out into Devereux Court, they fought, and one of them being run through the body, died on the spot. This Dr. King was principal of St. Mary's Hall, Oxford, and a staunch Tory. It is he who relates the secret visit of the pretender to London. He died in 1763. Ralph Thorsby, the Leeds topographer, met Dr. Sloan, the secretary of the Royal Society, by appointment at the Grecian in May 1712, and again in June he describes retiring to the Grecian after a meeting of the Royal Society, of which he was a fellow with the President Sir Isaac Newton, Dr. Halley, who published the Principa 
for Newton and Kiel, who opposed Leibniz about the invention of fluxions and defended Newton's doctrines against the Cartesians. The Royal Society held its meetings at this time in Crane Court, Fleet Street. Roger North, Attorney-General under James II, who died in 1733, describes in his examen the Privy Council Board as held at the Grecian Coffee House. The Grecian was closed in 1843 and has since turned into the Grecian Chambers. On what was once the front of the coffee house frequented by Steele and Addison, there is a bust of Essex with the date 1676. In this court at the house of one Kedder in 1678 died Marchmont Needham, a vigorous but unprincipled turncoat and newspaper writer who three times during the civil wars changed his principles to save his worthless neck. He was alternately the author of the Mercurius Britannicus for the Presbyterians, Mercurius Pragmaticus for the King and Mercurius Politicus for the Independents. The great champion of the late usurper, as the cavalier called him, whose pen compared with others, was a weaver's beam, laterally practised as a physician, but with small success. There is a letter of Pope addressed to Fortescue, his counsel learned in the law, at Tom's Coffee House in Devereux Court. Fortescue, the Pope's kind, unpaid lawyer, was afterwards, in 1738, Master of the Rolls, Pope's imitation of the first satire of Horace, suggested by Bolingbroke, was addressed to Mr. Fortescue and published in 1733. This lawyer was the author of the droll report in Scribulus of Straddling Versus Styles, wherein Sir John Swell leaves all his black and white horses to one straddling, but the question is whether this bequest includes Swale's piebald horses. It is finally proved that the horses are all mares. Dr. Birch, the antiquary, the dull writer but good talker, frequented Tom's and there Akenside, short, thin, pale, strumous and lame, scrupulously neat and somewhat petulant, vain and irritable, spent his winter evenings entangled in disputes and altercations, chiefly on the subjects of literature and politics that fixed on his character the stamp of haughtiness and self-conceit and drew him into disagreeable situations. Akenside was a contradictory man. By turns he was placid, irritable, simple, affected, gracious, haughty, magnanimous, mean, benevolent, yet harsh, and sometimes even brutal. At times he manifested a childlike docility, and at other times his vanity and arrogance made him seem almost a madman. Gay in his trivia describes Milford Lane so faithfully that it might pass for yesterday's sketch of the same place. He writes, Where the fair columns of St. Clement stand, whose straitened bounds encroach upon the strand, where the low-pent house bows the walker's head, and the rough pavement wounds the yielding tread, where not a post protects the narrow space, 
and strung in twines combs dangled in thy face. Summon at once thy courage, rouse thy care. Stand firm, look back, be resolute, beware. Forth issuing from steep lanes the collier's steeds, Drag the black load, another cart succeeds. Team follows team, crowds heapeth on, crowds appear. Stowe mentions Milford Lane, but gives no derivation for its name. The coarse poem by Henry Savile, commonly attributed to the witty Earl of Dorset, beginning in Milford Lane near to St. Clement's Steeple, gave the street for a time such a disagreeable notoriety as the pillory gives to a rogue. Arundel House in the Strand was the old inn or townhouse of the bishops of Bath, stolen by force in the rough, greedy times of Edward the Sixth by the bad Lord Thomas Seymour, the admiral and brother of the protector. From him it derived the name Seymour Place, and must have been conveniently near to the ambitious kingsman who afterwards beheaded him. This admiral had married Henry VIII's widow, Catherine Parr, and she dying in childbed, he began to woo, in his coarse, boisterous way, the young Princess Elizabeth, who had been living under the protection of a mother-in-law, who was indeed generally supposed to have been poisoned by the admiral. His marriage with Elizabeth would have smoothed his way to the throne in spite of her father's cautious will. It was said that Elizabeth always blushed when she heard his name. He died on the scaffold. Old Bishop Latimer, in a sermon, declared he was a wicked man and the realm is well rid of him. It is certain that, whatever were his plots, he had projected a marriage between Lady Jane Grey and the young king. The Admiral's house was bought on its owner's fall by Henry Fitz Allen, Earl of Arundel, for the nominal sum of forty-one pounds, six shillings and eightpence, with several other mousoages and lands adjoining. The Earl dying in 1579 was succeeded by his grandson, Philip Howard, son of the Duke of Norfolk, the owner of Essex House adjoining, who was beheaded for his intrigues with Mary of Scotland. He died in the Tower in 1598. The house then passed into the keeping of Robert Carey, Earl of Montmouth, during the minority of Thomas Howard, Philip's son. In Arundel Palace in 1603 died the Countess of Nottingham, sister of Sir Robert Carey. She was buried at Chelsea. It is of this Countess that Lady Spellman, a granddaughter of Sir Robert Carey, used to tell the doubtful legend of the ring given by Queen Elizabeth to Lord Essex, which an acute writer of the present day believes to be a pure fabrication of the times of James I. End of chapter 3, part 1 Recording by Drew Conway, Kent